Good job, guys. <clears throat> now. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 15. Now, today, this is going to be a, a very, very, very practical message today. If you're someone who has just gotten saved, or uh, a young Christian, or maybe even an older Christian, you've been saved for a while, but you're just now getting plugged in, I think this message today is going to be a great help to you. You know, Proverbs chapter 15, verses 6 through 9, is a great section on success in Christianity. You know, nobody, nobody likes to be not successful in anything that we do. We see it in the world uh, so much that have really went overboard with it all, is that they come to the place where when the kids play tr- track or soccer or baseball or softball or basketball that they can't stand for anybody to lose and so they got to give a trophy to everybody to try to make everybody feel okay and they do that because in their mind they think that everybody wants to be successful and and that's true but one of the great things in life about life is the fact that uh, when you're not successful in things sometimes you can learn more from failing in some things than you can by accomplishing it Life is a balance. But when it comes to Christianity, it has to be a success for you. And it can be a success for you. After all that God has done, after all that He's accomplished, after the Word of God that He's given us, the Holy Spirit of God that came at the day of Pentecost, there is absolutely no reason for a child of God today not to be successful in their Christian relationship. And I want to show you the fundamental key to being successful as a Christian that they found in this great passage. You know, let me define success for a child of God, first of all. I think that will help us, and then we'll come back and we'll build back into it. A successful Christian will simply be a man or a woman who simply finds out what God wants them to do with their life and then spend the rest of their life doing it. Spiritual success is in attaining some great high spiritual level in your life. It is an accomplishing things in your life. It's more than that. It's coming to the point in your life where you realize in the world that we live in that you realize that that Christ did something for you and he wants you to do something for him. And when you do that and you faithfully do it all of your life, that's success when it comes to God. I think the book of Nehemiah the book of Nehemiah has always been a favorite of mine. Nehemiah is a very unique individual. You know, when you look at the book of Nehemiah, you see exactly the, the root concept of, of success. Uh, you, you see when God's plan comes together. Here's a guy who just is following what he knows he is to do. He's just doing what he can do. He's just staying with it, following everything that he knows that he is to do. And you see that through the course of that, when everything kind of lays itself out, you finally see Nehemiah being the right guy 
in the right place at the right time. And that's what God wants for you. That's what God wants to accomplish in your life. And that is the real success for you and for me as a child of God. Simply coming to the place where you become the right man or woman at the right time and God puts you in the right place. And then you do with that what you know to do. And Proverbs is a, is a fundamental book about just two kinds of people when we talk about saved people. And, and we know that. We've talked about it many, many times. And you will find that these two kinds of people are in everyday life all around you. Every church has them. And one will find out what God wants with their life and do it, spend the rest of their life doing it. That'll be the wise man. And then there'll be those who, on the other hand, who will never figure it out and never do anything for God. That's the foolish man. Now let's read our verses today and begin to see, yet again, principles. We know now that principles of the Word of God are the building blocks. They is what we build in our life, and we build on the foundation of the day that we got saved. And I want to express today, uh, as I always try to do, I always try to keep before you the importance of having a principled life, a life that is built on principles, not operating on what you think or what you read or what you got off the Internet or what you, you feel in your emotions or how you look at a certain circumstance, but always using the principles of the Word of God to dictate everything that we do. Let's read Proverbs chapter 15, verses 6 through 9. In the house of the righteous is much treasure, but in the revenues of the wicked is trouble. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish doeth not so. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination unto God, but he loveth him that follow after righteousness. Steve Copeland, would you... Uh, ask God's blessing on the service today. Amen. You know, in our country today, we have a lot of issues. <clears throat> One of the major issues that is an ongoing issue is, is our economy. And it's always a problem. It's always a struggle. It doesn't matter what president gets in. There's always economic issues that uh, they're so fragile, and they can go south so quickly. And people are afraid of the instability of our own financial system. You hear words like recession. You hear words like depression. <clears throat> You hear words like economic recovery. And you hear a lot about investors and in people that things that people have invested in losing a lot of money. And it's, a, it's seemingly, you know, you have a 401k or an IRA or mutual funds or saving bonds or annuities, and, and uh, uh, all of them have taken a hit. Uh, most of them have not recovered from the 10 or 12 years ago when the economy really went down. It, they, it put us into a bona fide recession. And it seems to be a no-win situation. Gas is high. 
and everybody complains about that. But when gas goes down, everybody was excited so, because gas went down to uh, just a little over a dollar there for a while. I think it's back up to a dollar seventy something now, but for a while it was down almost under a dollar. Everybody's happy about that. Everybody thinks that, that uh, man, that's a great thing. I can save some money. Well, for you older folks who understand how the economy works, when oil goes down that cheap, it affects the whole market. And you may have got gas for a dollar nineteen someplace but you probably lost twelve, fifteen thousand dollars on your investment. That's how it works. It's a no-win situation. I get it. This is a young church. Look around. There's not too many old people here. Uh, we thank you for being old because you are the gray-head wisdom of our church. But the bottom line is, we're a young church, and I say that to say this: most young people never think about retirement. They, they don't don't think that way, and and you know they don't think about the time in their life when they won't be able to, to work anymore. I know I didn't when I was your age. I thought, you know what, oh, that's so far down the line. I don't have to worry about that. You know, I'm not going to save money now. I'm going to buy this because i got so much time to spend uh, to save money uh, the rest of my life. And so it comes around at the end of their life or retirement, they have nothing to fall back on. And it's a, it's a, it's a tragedy sometimes. And, and you take the couple now in their mid-20s and 30s, for them being 65 and 70 is a long way off. I'm going to tell you something. It's just around the corner. It'll be here so fast you won't know what hits you. It'll, it'll, your life, the Bible says, is like a vapor. It appeared for a while and fadeth away. Man, it doesn't last long. You go through this. Back in 1935, FDR founded what we know as a social security system. It was a unique plan that they were going to take money out of your paycheck. The government was going to take it. They were going to invest it and then uh, make a gigantic financial pool and uh, everybody's paying into it, and proportionally, as you got older and turned 65, then you got your money back uh, based on that, that you have something to live on. Problem was that it, it just didn't work that way because the government made a lot of bad investments, and they didn't do everything they should have done. A lot of that money got appropriated for other things. They just said, oh, we got plenty of money. Oh, by the time you retire, we'll pay it back. And they took that money and it never got paid back. Now, some of you who are sitting here under the sound of my voice who are paying in Social Security right now, the experts say by 2030 that it's going to be broke. No money in it. 14 years from now. 14 years from now. And the last two generations of most uh, people today will have nothing to carry them through uh, the later times of their life. They put nothing away for their future. And it's, it comes down to a lack of, of, of looking ahead. It comes down to a lack of basically understanding, a lack of self-discipline, a lack of planning, a lack of being good stewards of what you already have. Most people don't like to plan for the future. I mean, I'd hate to be a guy who sells cemetery plots. You know, they'll have it now where you can go into the funeral home, pick your casket out. I guess you can lay in it to see if it's comfortable if you want, get the color you want, pay the thing, everything up front, it's all taken care of. You go down the, go down the down the road, and you see billboard where they got this. I've always never trusted funeral directors. There's something weird about them. When I was in the military, I got a gig where I traveled all around. I played the trumpet also, and I, I did. I was the only guy, and I played funerals. for. And I got to spend a lot of time with funeral directors. I could tell you some horror stories about funeral directors, but I won't. But it's a wild thing. But you go down there, and they got this cheesy looking guy on there you know with a serene picture behind it and he says uh, underneath there leave well 
Unlike, in other words, when you die, die well, leave well. Don't leave any bills for anybody else. Make sure you're comfortable and dying. Get a pick up with a nice view. All that goofy stuff. You know what I'm saying? And the bottom line is that hitchhike off the fact that we want to live well. And I'd hate to try to be somebody who sold that because people don't want to plan ahead. You know, a, a, a guy who does investment planning probably doesn't get his clients to when they're 30, 40 years old. I don't know if one of you young couples in here that have got an appointment with a, an investment broker that's going to help you make good investment. We just don't think that way. And most people, they just, they, they think that simply, if I had more money, if I got a better job, if I won the lottery, if I got more money, it would solve all of my problems. And of course, that, that's not true either. Having more money won't solve your problems because the real problem is most of us don't have a good responsibility with the money we have because we don't make good investments. I think a greatest example of this is, is Donald Trump. I'm not political. I could care less about any of those guys. But I like to watch people and learn from them. I try to learn from everybody. And Donald Trump is one of the most interesting guys that you're ever going to study in a lot of ways. He pictures what your life and my life should be that I'm going to preach on this morning. Because Donald Trump, here's a guy who started out with a million dollars. I think his dad gave him a million dollars. And you know, that sounds like a lot of money, but a million dollars is not a lot of money today. It really is. Not when you buy a house for $200,000 and, you know, a car for $60,000. I mean, it can go very quick. But he had a million dollars. And what he did... He made good investments. And when he made good investments, he invested in the right things, and he took that million dollars, and now he's worth somewhere around 700 to 800 million dollars by making good investments. I heard him say uh, last couple of debates, and I like to watch the debates because I like to use that as a scrutiny to read character and read between the lines and see. It's just, to me, it's, it's an interesting thing to do. And I heard him say in one of the last debates concerning his business success, he stood up there and very proudly he said, I'm a, when it comes to my businesses, the reason why I'm successful is I'm a very principled man. Now, when he said that, I took note. Because I know the principles he's talking about are not the same principles I'm talking about this morning. But the point is clear that he made a success in his business by making good investments. And he made good investments because he followed a set of principles that was in his own life on where he made investments and where he didn't. And in a spiritual sense, the Bible says, in the house of the righteous is much treasure, but the revenue of the wicked is trouble. And we're going to look at two key words today and what they mean. One of them is going to be the revenue of your life. The other one is going to be the treasure of your life. Because the verse is true. Old Donald did exactly what every one of us should be doing, except he did it in the business world. You and I ought to be doing it in the spiritual world that we live in. Simply taking what you have that God has given you and making good investments with it for God. Now, spiritually speaking, to begin to understand this whole format, God made the initial investment in all of us. He came down on the cross. He died. He made it possible for you and I to have eternal life. He gave us his son 
the investment that he made in us with his own son, and through that came your salvation today. And after God made that the initial investment, he expects you and me to do something with that investment. It's like Donald's dad giving him a million dollars. I don't think his dad expected Donald just to go out and blow it and take trips and buy this and buy that. I think he expected Donald to do something with the million dollars that he gave him. And when God came down and sent his son on the cross and he saved you, he made an investment of at least a million bucks dollars in your life through that salvation. It cost God something for you to have the investment that God gave you. I've never understood God's people who, who, who take and understand that it costs something for God to give us our salvation, but then we go through life thinking that it should not cost us anything now that we do have that salvation. He made the investment in you, the investment in me, that you would take that investment and make good choices with it. He wants a revenue back from you. He wants a return back on his investment. If Donald Trump's dad was still alive and Donald would have had wasted the money on riotous living and buying every frivolous thing and wound up broke today, his dad would have been greatly disappointed. I don't know if his dad's still alive or not, but I bet if he was alive, from a worldly standpoint, he would be very proud because he's looking at the million dollars he gave him, now an $800 million revenue return. We stand here or sit here this morning after receiving the investment that God is giving to us and never thinking about the return on that investment. Thinking ahead in a time when your life, when you can enjoy the benefits of your good spiritual investments that you made, the investments you've made keep working for you long after you can't. I mean, if you get a 401k and you let it in there all your life and you now you've got the time you're 70 years old and you can't work anymore, but you've done good things, you made good investments, you got two or three or four million dollars in investments in there, you can put that into a plan where you could never touch the principal, you live off the interest and you can live the rest of your, you planned ahead for a time that you could be successful and keep on living when you could not work anymore. And I want to tell you something. In every one of your life and my life as a Christian, you may be in your springtime of your life right now, especially you, because you're only, what, 20, 21, honey? Good to see you today. Bless your heart. See, I don't mind getting my glasses crooked if I get to hug her. It's okay. You're still in the springtime in your life. You're young. You've got vibrance. You've got everything going for you. And what you don't understand is that there's coming a time in your life, even though you're in the springtime or the summer of your life, winter's coming. And there's coming a time when you're not going to jump as high as you used to, run as fast as you used to, work the hours you used to work. And there will come a time in your life when you can't maybe do any of that anymore. You better have something to fall back on. And spiritually speaking... There'll be a time in your life where you can't do what you do for God right now. This is why the Bible said Timothy told uh, a young, uh, uh, Paul told young Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. He said, be thou an example of the believer. Because he knew that right now was the greatest time 
for you to ever do and make that investment. When you get older, you can't get around as much. You get complications from chronic problems of health, and it keeps you from doing what you need to do. Right now is the prime time of your life. That's just why God, in my mind, totally understand why he gave us such a young church and seasoned it with good older men and women who can help the younger ones. And you think the devil doesn't know that? I drive by John Knack Village about two or three times a week. And I don't know for sure on this, but I'll probably be safe in saying this. I don't think there's ever been a drug bust in John Knox Village. I've been over there a couple of times visiting on people, walking down them halls. There's no blaring rock music coming out of their rooms like it is in your dorms where you go to school. You might hear a little Willie Nelson creeping under the door a little bit, you know, but, but you know why? You know why they don't have those problems? Because they don't pose a threat to the devil anymore. He's not after them like he's after you. They've made whatever investments they're going to make. You are in a place in your life where you now, right now, need to be really thinking about the investment he made in you. The revenue that you give back to him. You've heard me say many, many times that, uh, you know, in the, looking at the picture of Christianity, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first coming in Christ. He comes, dies on the cross. Bible says in Hebrews that when he, he come out of that tomb, he defeated the devil. He's now got the keys to death and hell. The devil has completely lost at that point. And right there on the spot, when it's finally fixed, the devil's gone, everything's out of place, he's got everything going he decides to go back to heaven and leave you and me down here with this mess. Do you know why he did that? Because he put something in play by making an investment that he expected you and me to pick up and bring a return on that investment and finish for him what he did not finish when he was here. God had a plan to reach the world, still does, with the gospel. And I've told you before, he does that through families. Moms and dads, Investing in their families, who in turn invest in the Word of God, who invested into the world in ministry. When we finally get to Proverbs 30, chapter 31 and you see this virtuous woman, that whole chapter is nothing more about a woman who has made the right investments in her family, her children, and every aspect of her life. It's the investment. God made the capital investment up front for you and for me. Now, we are to take, as wise investors, the Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God, and through our life bring a return on God's original investment. Make a profit, so to speak, spiritually. You notice how God always puts His spiritual blessings and, 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 and riches in the form of human resources? That's so you and I will identify with them. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that after you get saved, you lay the foundation. You build on it gold, silver, precious stones. He said in Malachi chapter 3 that the people that you win to Christ are jewels. Valuable jewels that go in a crown. And in Luke chapter 16 verse 11, he talks about the riches of this world, but then he talks about the true riches. 
And here in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 6, he says, he says, revenue. That's money that comes in. That's a profit that you make. And treasure. Now let me explain to you how it works. When you got, and this is going to help you if you're a young Christian today. When you got saved, God, Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Bible says that God gave you a measure of faith. It says over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, that he gave you a measure of grace. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you got saved, God just gave you enough grace and gave you enough faith to believe what you needed to believe about getting saved. You don't have enough faith yet to go out and be a missionary. You don't have a grace, enough grace yet to go out and deal with people. You don't have enough grace or enough understanding of things to, uh, to go, go back and, and deal with your own family and tell them what happened. He gave you grace and he gave you faith by a measure. A measure of it. Just enough that you could see, understand, and believe about you. From that point on, that is the initial investment that he put in you. You now begin to take that measure of grace, measure of faith, and you develop it. You go through discipleship one, and you learn a little bit more about God and the Bible. Your faith and your grace grows a little bit. You go through discipleship two. And the same thing happens. You start moving to another spiritual level. God took that measure of faith and grace that he gave you, and now you're doing something with it. You're investing in the Bible in a most basic way, but already it's bringing a return. You grow for a while, and you find over there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that there's seven things once you're saved. There's seven things you were to add to your faith. And most of God's people who claim to love God, claim to read the Bible, claim to be spiritual, they couldn't even tell you what those seven things are. But those seven things bring a return. Those seven things, when you look at each one of them, go through the Bible, play them out, put them together, apply them to your life, that's an investment. That's an investment. Because you and I are to take that measure of faith and grace and invest it. We grow it. We expand it. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 4 says that you exercise it. You develop it. You all know the parable in Luke chapter 19 where God came down and he gave every man a pound. And he says, I'm going to come back and I want to see what you did with that pound. He comes back to one guy and the one guy says, I took that pound and I made good investments and now I got 10 pounds. Somebody else says, I took that pound you gave me and I made some good investments. I got five pounds back for you, Lord. Then he comes to the third guy and the third guy says, oh, I still got the original pound you gave me. I never did anything with it. That's most of God's people. Most of God's people never do anything with the initial investment that God invests in them. And then they wonder why they don't really understand what God is doing in their life. 
When you get saved, we here at this church fundamentally help you make good investments. A couple of weeks ago, I was joking with you at the end of the sermon. It wasn't really joking. It's true. And I told you how that, that as a pastor, I'm an insurance salesman. I sell you the best insurance policy that covers any problems you'll ever have. But I'm also, as a pastor, an investment broker. I'll help you make the right investments of your life and what God has given you to, in turn, like Donald Trump, take your initial investment and turn it into a millennial treasure. Take the initial investment that God gave you, that million dollars like Trump had, and turn it into $800 million. That's my job. Now, some of you don't like that. Some of you don't like to be told that's not a very good investment. But it's what I want to do. But it's not a good investment. My job is to help you make the best investment of your life that God has given you. You know, in the Bible, the concept of stewardship is a tremendous study. Virtually unknown today. And in the Old Testament... The great example and model of stewardship will be a guy by the name of Eleazar, Abraham's chief steward. You'll find him mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, and you'll find him in action in Genesis chapter 24. Tremendous study. Tremendous study. Now, a steward, stewardship, the concept of stewardship, will be a man who the master of the house entrusts his riches to him and expects him to take care of it to make investments on it, but to always be responsible for it. And you know, that's exactly what God did when He saved you. He gave you the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And you need to be God's steward of that. God gave you a trust. He entrusted to us His riches through Christ Jesus. That's what God has done with you and me, and we are to be good stewards of what all that God has given us. It's Eleazar in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the model for stewardship will be the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 1, verse 7, it says, For a bishop, pastor, must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed nor soon angry. Now, in the New Testament, for a Christian who has charge of all God has to make the right investments, there's going to be listed in the Bible for you seven different stewardships. There's seven different stewardships in the Bible. I don't know how many times I've asked pious Christians, are you a good steward with God? Oh, yes, I am. Good. What are the seven stewardships that he laid out in the Bible. Don't have a clue. How do you be a good steward when you don't even know what the seven stewardship concepts are? And none of them have anything to do with money. You've got pastors in this city and around this country who are in churches, pastoring churches. And the people of those churches have trusted their spiritual growth and their spiritual well-being of themselves, their families, their spiritual growth to this guy. And he doesn't have a clue what spiritual stewardship is. Churches today, I don't know if you notice it or not, churches today are failing by the hundreds. I've never seen a time when God changes his mind so much. 
It's almost an epidemic of church failures today. And every pastor, when it fails, it's always the people's fault. It's like a husband when he loses his marriage. It's always the wife's fault. And in both cases, that's not true. If a church fails, it's not the people's fault. If the church fails, it's the pastor's fault. And in a marriage, if the marriage fails, it's not the wife's fault. It's the husband's fault. Because those are two leadership roles. And as I've said, a hundred million thousand billion times. Don't ever exaggerate. (laughs) Everything rises and falls on leadership. Especially in the church. We had a guy one time in our church. I think right now he's on his sixth church. And they've all flopped. They've all failed. Uh, you know, and he, 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 he just can't get it. He get, and he can't see it. You know, it's one of these things that, uh, you know, God called him here. And then God got it wrong. So God uncalled him there and then called him someplace else. And then God got it wrong again and called him back and called him someplace else. I wish God could just get it straight. Now, does anybody here think the problem is God? No. Well, at least one of you don't, and I appreciate that. You know why that's the way it is? Stewardship. A failure in their ability to be a good steward over the things that God has given them. And I'm telling you, it affects you in every aspect of your life. They have no idea what they're doing. They couldn't build a church if their life depended on it. And I, I know, you know, well, you don't know how tough it is where I'm at. How tough can it be when God's in it? I mean, really, if God called you there, did he call you there only to be there when it wasn't tough? Or did he call you there to invest your life through the good and the bad? If I had came to Kansas City and started this church and only did it because there was only going to be good things and the first time something nasty happened, I would change my mind, we wouldn't even be here today. When it comes to pastoring a church, you buy it. You buy the field. You buy it with your life. You buy it with everything you have. And no matter whether it goes good or goes bad or whatever it goes, if that's where God has called you, stay with what God has called you to do. Problems in Titus 1-7. They're self-willed. God didn't call them. They created their own scenario. They talk about God doing it right up to the point where they flop. And everybody else knows around who has a little idea about the Bible knows that, you know what? God wasn't in it from the beginning. So when you get saved, God makes that crucial investment in you. And the question here today is, what have you done with that investment? What's your plans? God made an investment in you. Let me ask you a question. What kind of investment have you made in him? I mean, you and me right now, or to make a return, a revenue, on that investment. That's stewardship. If you've been saved five or ten years, I'll give you five years just to get it all figured out. It would be safe to say that right now you are today, right now this moment, good or bad, exactly what you have made your investment in. And it's the same way with your children. Your children are in church today or they're not in church today based on your investment. It's just that simple. It's the same way with your marriage. 
Your marriage is either great today or it's not good today, and it all comes down on the investment that you made. It will be what you invested in it. You know, one of the constants, one of the absolutes of life, and it's so true, you only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. When I was into astronomy, and I've been interested in astronomy all my life, and a number of years ago, I, I, really got, I, I really got the bug to take really good astronomical pictures. I'd see guys that would post them on the, on the website and read, look at the books, and uh, it was just, I, I just had such a desire I wanted to be able to do that. And, and technically, you know, with the advancement of today, and most people don't even know this, you can do today in your backyard with the equipment that they have and the technology that's available, you can do in your backyard with a regular backyard telescope what they could not do with a 200-inch Mount Palomar 40 years ago. Now, that's impressive. And I said to myself, I'm going to do this. I want to learn this. But man, was it a, was it a learning curve. I mean, you just don't get a camera and put it on your telescope and voila. I saw some of those pictures of galaxies that when you take a picture on it, that shutter on that camera has to stay open a half hour, maybe an hour, even longer. My great elusive object that I, I remember seeing it through a telescope, and it was, it was incredible through a telescope, but it was incredibly hard to photograph. It was, it was a galaxy uh, called NGC 4565. Don't let the terminology fool you. It's a, it's a, that's a National Galactic Catalog. There's so many galaxies out there that they couldn't, they had to put them in a, in a, in a format. This galaxy was eight, if, if science is correct, probably not, but they tell us that it's 860 billion light years away. Can you fathom that? If you're looking at it through a telescope and you're seeing it, it's 860 billion light years away. Let me give you a, a, a perspective. If it would blow up and disintegrate in an instant while you're looking at it, you'd still see it for 860 billion years in the future because it'd take that long for the light to get to you. That's incredible. And when you start taking pictures, got to fight the weather. Got to fight the earth's rotation. Got to fight the moon, the clouds. Got to fight your focus, temperature change, guiding gear issues, fatigue, polar alignment, dew, cold, stray light. There's about 10 things that's got to happen all at the same time to get a decent picture. And I'll tell you something. I mean, here's what you got to do. You got a telescope. You put the camera in, it runs to your computer. Now, every telescope that's a good telescope will have a drive system on it that you line it up to the North Star, and it'll track. And it tracks good if you're looking in it. But boy, you put a critical camera in on a critical object, and there's no perfect gear. So that thing is going to drag and blur all over the place. So now you've got to mount another telescope on back of that telescope, put a very high-powered eyepiece in it with the crosshairs. You've got to find a star out here. After you get it centered in the middle of your, your, your telescope, and the chip you're working with is probably, probably as big as a eraser on a pencil, maybe smaller. 
trying to find one little object in outer space and find it on that little chip is almost impossible. And then you got to keep it there. And it's drifting off and drifting here. So now what you got to do is you got to get in a comfortable position, bend that scope on the back through it, find a star, get it right in the middle, and then for an hour, keep your little hand control that gives a little signals to the motors, and just every time it starts to drift, you start bringing it, you got to keep it right on that crosshair. Sometimes you're freezing it. Sometimes it's been so cold out there, my shutter froze open on the camera. It was so cold. The mosquitoes get it. And, and one little sneeze, one little bump, and you lost it all. I've taken a 45-minute exposure, got it up to 44 minutes and 30 seconds, and then was so excited, bumped it with my knee, end of story. Done. It's incredible. Hard. I literally practiced hundreds of hours. I would never put a camera in it. I'd go out in the cloudy nights, and if I could just see one star, I'd practice guiding. I'd practice focusing. I'd do everything that I could know to do. It was the hardest learning curve I have ever taken in my life. I took pictures of the planets. And they see my pictures, and they say, wow, that's really impressive. You know what it took to get that picture? The Earth's atmosphere changes by the millisecond. It'll be clear for a second, and the next instant, it'll be blurry. So you got to focus it up, set it up, get it lined up, and then you got to take about two to three hundred pictures, one, two, three, every two or three seconds, and then you got to sort through all of them to find the ones you, that, that where the atmosphere steadied down enough to get a good picture. It's an incredible learning curve. But I wanted to do it so bad. I'll tell you. There's my Mars. Polar claps on it. I am Mars in the middle. I mean, hey, that was 300 photographs I had to do. Here's my Saturn. You never saw anything that the Mount Palomar did, and I did that in my driveway in Raytown. All of these. Just set it up in a driveway. But it was a learning experience to learn how to do that. My neighbors thought I was crazy, but I don't care. <laughs> this is one that we all know, the great red dragon of Revelation chapter 13. I had to get this one because the Bible says that the Antichrist is connected with the loosing of the bands of Orion. And in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, he's called the red red dragon. You put a camera open air on the belt of Orion that's going to open up. And look what you find right there in the middle of that belt, the great red dragon. Had to have that one. Ah, then here's my one. NGC 4565. An incredible edge-on spiral galaxy. 860 billion light years away. That was 40 minutes in the freezing cold. Just holding that little thing there. Just taking the picture. And if you notice up here, if you look at it, I not only got that one, but I got an even farther distant galaxy way back here. Who knows how far that is? I named that one Bob's Galaxy. (laughs) But I only got that based on what I was willing to invest into the time to learn how to do it. Everything in life that's worth doing is going to be a learning curve. In that particular case, it took a total and complete 
of giving everything I had to invest because I wanted to get that kind of quality of picture, that kind of return. Now, you know, in a spiritual sense, it's the same way. It's the same way with the Bible. You know why you don't get anything out of the Bible? Because you don't put anything in the Bible. That's why some of you have been saved the same amount of time. Some of you really got it down. Some of you haven't even begun yet. It's an investment. No single investment will be more important to you than your total investment in the Word of God. A hundred percent of what I do for you in this church is to help you with that investment. Last Thursday night, or a couple of Thursday nights ago, it wasn't last Thursday night, I walked you through the curriculum of how to put the Bible together for you. Some of you will take that and do something with it. Some of you won't do a thing with it. You know why? Because, and then you'll complain about the fact that, man, I've been saved 20, 30 years and I don't know the Bible. Whose fault is that? If I was like you, I'd be still winding around looking at all them pictures and saying, man, I want to take pictures like that. You know how I got to take pictures like that? I did what it took to learn the learning curve and made the investment. Voila! You know how you learn the Bible? There's a learning curve. You make the investment the right way, the right investments, get it done, and you learn it. Just that simple. You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it, like church. There's people who come to go to every church, go to all churches. They go to church, but they're never part of the church. They never do anything. And then they say, "Well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm bored. I, I, I'm, I'm depressed. You know." I had somebody say one time, well, you know what, I just, I'm not going back to church, Bob. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, I just don't get anything out of church. And I said, do you know why? Well, why? Because you never put anything in the church. You haven't done anything. I mean, there's 300 people here who do something and get something out of it, and you don't. They're wrong, and you're right. It comes down to whatever investment you're willing to put in. No prayer group. No volleyball. No social activities, you know, no Super Bowl party, no camp, I mean, no, no nothing. And, and I'm not saying you've got to be in all of that, but what I'm saying is, man, there's enough going on here. I mean, any time three people get at it, a party breaks out. <laughs> the church is to be the center of your life. Everything you should do should wrap around that. But you only get out of what you put into it. The same way with your friend. Well, I don't have any friends. Bible says that Proverbs 18, 24, that he that have friends must show themselves to be friendly. You want some friends? I'll show you how to get them. Hi, I'm Bob Alexander. Will you be my friend? <laughs> your marriage. I've got to be honest with you. How did some of you ever get married? I mean, honestly, if you treated each other before marriage the way you do now, why, how would you ever get married in that? I mean, you know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. It always happens. When you're courting, you want to make a good impression, you cross all your T's and dot all your I's because you want to get that person. You do all the kinds of things that you're supposed to do. You open the door for them. You're very courteous to them. You take a lot of stuff, you know, if you're, you, you say, you go, say, say, honey, where would you like to go tonight? She says, oh, I don't care. Well, I'd like to go here. That's the last place you want to go. You know what you do? You go. Because you try to make an investment in the thing. 
My wife and I were driving down the road just the other day and pulled up to a light and there was a car in front of us and it looked like a, a large guy sitting there driving. And then all of a sudden, they moved apart and it was a guy and a girl. She looks over at me and she says, we used to do that. I looked over at her and said, I haven't moved. <laughs> That's your point. You know what happened? You were willing to make the investment before you got married, but after you got married, you just quit making an investment. Conquered. I won. Listen, a good marriage is just continually refining your investment. That's all it is. You writing that down, Nick? You know whatever. You know, you know, okay. He's, he's going to it. He's getting it down. Well, he's even using a red pencil. That's. You know, it's also true your relationship with God. 99% of God's people give God what's left over their life, the scraps. And then they wonder why it doesn't work for them. Some of God's people know more about their habits and their patterns of their dogs than they do about God. You know, you, if you've got a dog and you're close to that dog, that dog, he doesn't can't, can't communicate. But you know dogs have certain barks that mean certain things. When somebody comes to the house that they don't know who it is, that's one bark. Somebody comes to the house that they really like and know who it is, that's another bark. If you've got a lucky, you've got a dog who will bark when he's got to go out. I can tell upstairs in the morning when I get up and I sit down breakfast and my dogs start to bark, I, I know that I can tell by their bark whether it's just them goofing around or there's some serious business that need to be taken care of. <laughs> my dog never barked throughout the night, never do. If my dog starts barking at night, I know there's a problem. You see, we get to the place where we invest our life in things like that so much that we can discern the very barks of our dogs, but we can't discern the voice of God when he tries to tell us something. Investment. Only get out what you put into it. Look at chapter, 15 verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 24 says, The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolish is the fool's is folly. Now let me tell you something else about making good investments. In the world of investments... To get a good return, you got to do what they call diversify. You don't put all your assets on one stock. And spiritually speaking, it's the same thing. When you learn the Bible, you don't just leave it there. You got to put it out. You got to do something with it. You got to apply it. And then you got to give it out to others. Then you get involved in ministry where you can start to use what you know. That's diversity. You just don't do one thing. You exercise yourself. You become diverse in many things, and you become good at a lot of things. The kind of Christian that God wants you to be is the kind of Christian that you can get to the place in your life when God has a scenario here. I call it the eunuch scenario. He had an old Ethiopian eunuch out there on the backside of the desert and needed the truth. And God knew he had a man, Philip, that he could pick up and drop in that scenario and never worry twice about Philip not knowing exactly what to say and what to do. That's what he wants with you. You go to work tomorrow, you think you're going to job. He got all kinds of scenarios he would love to put you in. Amen. There's all kinds of people there that are struggling. And they probably watching your life and know you're a Christian. You say, why God? Why doesn't God match the two of us up? Because he doesn't want to confuse the guy any more than he already is. Because you don't know what you're talking about. 
You need to get some investments that will pay long-range dividends long after you're gone. You all go through our little discipleship programs here. I've never told anybody this. I wrote those 35, 40 years ago. To date, to my knowledge, anyhow, those discipleship lessons are in 16 different languages in 20 different countries. And hundreds of churches across this country use them. And they don't even know who wrote them. There's no name on it. Nobody takes the credit for it. To God be the glory. I don't have a right to take credit for that. You know why? It was the investment that he made in me that I just gave back to him. What my investment? But I'll tell you, that's a long-range investment that when I can't do the work anymore, the work's going to keep going on with it. 24-7, while I sleep in Africa, Korea, Japan, China, Romania, Hungary, the Ukraine, Russia, Philippines, Mexico, Latin America, South America, Australia, all the time somebody's using them. Those lessons will go on long after I preach my last sermon. But you see, that was an investment. And I said, Lord, I'm going to write these lessons for my people. Some of you older folks were in the first class way back in the basement over there when I first taught those lessons. Don't need to comment that I had hair then. I got hair now. I don't know what you're talking about. But you were there. And God said, you know what? I'm going to take that investment that you made in those people and I'm going to bring a return for myself. That investment that I made 40 years ago, Bible says, Isaiah 55, 11, that the Word of God won't return void, and it won't. That keeps bringing a return. It's paid off as a return for the Lord over and over and over again. And you know what? I've had guys that have taken those lessons, recopied them, put their name on them like they put them out. Somebody said one time, isn't this your lessons? And I said, yeah, it is. He said, well, so-and-so put his name on it. I said, okay. Aren't you upset? Why? You think God doesn't know who did him? What am I worried about who gets the credit down here for it? If you can put your name on it and God can get the honor and glory out of it, go get it. Now, one of my books is copyright. I've had people take that book, How to Study the Bible. Can I copy it off and, and pass it out? Absolutely. For me, copyright means copyright whatever you want and do it. Do it. It isn't about who gets the honor and glory for it. I was at a, I was at a conference years ago with a bunch of, of pastors, and it was a discipleship conference, and I was going to preach there. And we had a luncheon, and I'm sitting there with all these pastors, and the head pastor was my buddy sitting over here, and a pastor's wife sitting over here. We're having a pleasant conversation. She's a very nice lady, you know, about mid-age, nice, nice-looking lady, you know, dressed very well, very, very, you know, typical pastor's wife. She's a, she's a bum. Anyway, <laughs> we're talking back and forth, and she says, oh, she says, she says, it's so nice to meet you. And I said, well, it's nice to meet you. She says, are you here for the conference? And I said, yeah, I'm speaking here uh, one of the nights. She says, oh, that's wonderful. She says, I think the discipleship is so, is so absolutely crucial. And they're all using my discipleship material. I'm going to preach on how the whole, and she looks at me and she says, do you use it? 
I said, yeah, it's just, isn't, it, she says, isn't it wonderful? Do you use it? And I said, yeah, it's pretty good. It's okay. It's okay. You know. She said, she looked at me. She says, well, you must have wished that you wrote it. I didn't have the heart to tell her. <laughs> I did write it, lady. <laughs> Who cares? Who cares? People ministry last week, boy, we had a great time. We were over there in First Chronicles chapter 29, David's great charge to Solomon. And I showed him three different patterns to that great charge. Oh, incredible. And I showed him probably one of the greatest verses on ministry and your investment and getting the credit or who gets the credit for what you do. And old, so- old David told Solomon in First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14, he said this. He says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? Talking about giving himself to God. And here's what he said. He says, who am I? And, and, and that I should be able to offer so willingly after this sort, like it's a big deal or something. And then he says this, for all things come of thee and of thine own hand we give thee. You're not giving anything to God that he hadn't already given to you. It isn't yours. You find something in the Bible. Oh, look what I... If God's Holy Spirit wouldn't open up that book and showed it to you, you'd be blind as a bat backing in backwards. Somebody said, well, look at my book. I wrote this great thing. You didn't do a thing. All you did was take what God gave you, do something with it that you should have gave back to Him. All we do when we give back to God, our investment is simply based on what He first gave to us through His investment. Now, how do you take credit for something like that? You don't. It all belongs to Him. It all came from Him, and it all goes back to Him. That's why over there in Revelation, all the crowns you get, looks like the indicator is that someday after it's all over, we go into that throne room, and all the crowns that God gave us for our labors down here, we just throw them down at His feet clearly just demonstrating that you wouldn't have those crowns if it wasn't for him. It all came from him, so it all goes back to him. Now look at the next verse, verse 7. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish doth not sow. Now in the world of making investments, you have another thing that you want to understand. It's called insider trading. It's illegal. This is what got Martha Stewart in trouble. Insider trading is somebody tells you from the inside what stock's going to do so you know how to bid on it, and you get a leg up on everybody else because you have inside information, and it's against the law. But as a Christian, as a Christian leader, as a teacher of the Bible, as dealing with people, we do that all the time. We give people inside information on the best investments that they're supposed to make with their lives. That's what we do. You see, you think you're in a church service today. Well, you're wrong. You're in a seminar on how to make a billion dollars with just working with what you have by dispersing knowledge by putting it out, by doing something with it. I will advise you based on the spiritual stock indicator, the Word of God, which ones will get you the most return for the Lord on your investment. I'll give you some insider trading. You need to be in a church that will give you the best opportunity to make the the best return on the investment that God has given you. Getting first-hand information. I've known people who will stay in a dead church forever. Uh, when, they, when they know it's dead, nothing's going on, they're not learning anything, and they're going nowhere, and they know they need to get out. 
And they will every day of their life. They'll waste and miss the opportunity of the investment of a surefire opportunity. They, they remind me of people who hold and keep buying stock for TWA. Transworld Airlines went out of business 25, 30 years ago. But they remind me of people that want to keep stock and keep buying worthless stock because they have some sentimental attachment to a worthless investment. Now, you take that investment you got and you tell somebody else about it. You take that investment that you got and you get someplace where they can give you the best information on the inside you can get to make the right investments that God wants you to make. Don't be like the guy in Luke chapter 19 after all the investment that God gave him, he only comes back with the same investment. Look at verse 8. This is a good one. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Now here's the heart of it all and here's the bottom line. It goes without saying that a real investment for a child of God and what he does will be in the sacrifices that he makes in his life for God. Most people, Christians, don't even understand what a real sacrifice is. It's defined for you in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and 2 Samuel chapter 24. Those are the definitive passages on what a real biblical sacrifice is. The verse says sacrifices that are an abomination to God. That's simply somebody making the wrong investments with the wrong things. You know, human nature, man, saved man, unsaved man, he just has a passion for taking the true things of God and turning them into the things of the world. The greatest religious hypocrisy that you'll ever find is never more manifest than when the wicked begin to sacrifice to God in the wrong way. They'll take the concepts of a sacrifice and turn it into a sacrament. And it becomes an abomination before God. They'll abstain from eating meat on Friday like a some great sacrifice. When in truth, the whole concept of not eating meat on Friday doesn't go back to the church. It goes back to the pagans with Freya, the god of fertility. Friday's named after her. The fish, being the fish god, fertile with a lot of eggs. And it's abomination to God. So God fixes it. So he just has sharks eat Catholics on Friday. It works out pretty good. <laughs> the abomination of thinking a prayer band, rock band, or a worship service is really something biblical of God. But it's just of the world. God's people today couldn't define true biblical worship if their life depended on it. It's thinking that baby dedication day really means something to God. Like taking your baby in, bringing it up the front, having everybody pray over it, going to make sure your child turns out right. I'll tell you what. Instead of having baby dedication, we ought to have parent dedication. That's what we ought to have. But you can't get anybody to come when you do that because all the parents would have to hit the altar and get right with God. The little baby's just nice. It's fuzzy. They're cute. They cry. Everybody says, oh, isn't that cute? Baby dedications are only outdone by little babies walking down in a wedding. I'm just going to tell you. Dumbest thing on the planet. And I know it's cute. I'm standing up there. Before the bride comes down, they send these little kids down. You know by the rehearsal, the kids ain't going to do it. They're flowing flowers. 
doing all this thing. And you got, you got, so you have a coach. You have a mom or somebody here sat down there. And they actually, get, get, I've seen them get on their knees in the middle of the thing, you know, and, 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 and try to coax them down. I'm standing up here. I, I think I say, man, if you turn around this way on your knees, you'll probably get right with God. But hey, hey, they're coaxing them down. Kids don't want to come. Then the day of the wedding, it's a, ter- it's, it's a disaster. Kid starts to cry. Kid, some down, sees aunt, somebody that he hasn't seen, runs over there. And everybody thinks it's cute. Okay, it's cute. Let's get on with the wedding. Walking Dead's on at 8 o'clock, and I need to get home. <laughs> Babies are cute. So you bring a lot of people down. And you got to understand, I know where baby dedication started. It started in Baptist because they cared nothing about the babies. They wanted to have a trick play up the middle to get new parents to come because what parent wouldn't want their kid to go to heaven and be right with God? So you trick them into thinking that if you come to baby dedication and we dedicate your baby to God, you got an edge on God now. You're stupid. You could dedicate that baby 100,000 times. If mom and dad are not going to be dedicated, you're not going anywhere. That's why they never had me preach as baby dedications. You can probably understand now why. He says the, the sacrifice of the wicked are abomination. I often think what God thinks when we take the birth of Christ and all these churches make December 25th the day he was born. I often think how God must think when we have Easter and everybody puts the lilies around the church. And everybody has all the little things that they do. And they get up there and they sing, out from the grave he arose. And they have an Easter pageant over here. And I wonder how God looks at that when he knows that December 25th was never the birthday of Jesus Christ. It's the birthday of Baal. Easter is Ashtar, the god of fertility. It's pagan. It's never been part of Christianity. But they just, and God just looks at that. And I, sometimes I think, what, what, does he, what does he even think about us? Now, now I understand. You come here on Christmas, there will not be a Christmas message. I am sorry. You come here on Easter, it's a letter from hell. Close as I can get to Easter. But you know what? I understand it's part of our society. I do. I, 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 you can find some people who buy it all the way into it. They'll have nativity scenes. They'll have Christmas trees in the church. They'll have everything and all. They'll have nativity scenes out front. They'll go rent some goat someplace from somebody and put out in the front and have people standing out there in the cold, you know, and people will drive by. And they think they're really making a statement for God. No, you just look stupid. But I get it. You got people who go the far over here, and then you got the other people, whoop, I don't celebrate Christmas, I don't have a Christmas tree. I get it, I get it, I get it. I take the biblical approach. I know exactly from the Bible how you approach Christmas and Easter. Acts 21, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I mean, it's so clear in the Bible why you have to be and deal with these things. But people are who they are. People are who they are. I mean, ask yourself why in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, New Testament's done. New Testament is finished. Put away, Colossians chapter 2 says. But now you got Timothy, and Paul goes with the Jews in the New Testament, the apostle to the church, and he has Timothy circumcised under the Old Testament law when we're in the New Testament. (laughs) Figure that one out. 
And then you go over to Galatians 2, where he's right back down in Jerusalem with the Jews, and he has Titus this time, who's a Gentile, and he won't let him get circumcised. You figure out why those two, and come and talk to me. You'll have some credibility when it comes to the Bible. Other than that, burn your bail pole. The Bible gives you models how to deal with these things. How about the sacrifice of building buildings instead of building people? Pastors will spend millions and millions and millions of dollars building gigantic buildings and never invest one thing into the people that they have. In many Baptist churches in this city, if you want to go to a special class like we have people ministry or like when we had the institute, not only do you give your time to that church, but you want to get something special at a special class or special teaching, you got to pay for it. Well, you know why you got to pay for it? So they can pay for the Taj Mahal that they built. I wonder how God looks at that. I wonder how God must feel when man offers up his sacrifice for his own salvation when God's son already made it. I wonder how good God looks at Cain's fruit stand religion. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 and 12 says, And every priest standeth daily ministering and often taught the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. I'll say it again. The definite, definitive passage on biblical sacrifice is 1 Samuel 15 and 2 Samuel chapter 24. Now look at verse 9. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he that loveth him, that he loveth him that followeth after righteousness. Now, in the context here, the way of the wicked will be in a reference to the sacrifices in the last verse. So it's real simple. For you and for me, always follow the light that God gives you. Always follow after righteousness. Oh, Bob Jones Sr. said it's never, never, right to do, never, never right to do wrong to get the chance to do right. He said, do good to the stars fall out. Always follow the light that God gives you when it's biblical, and it will lead you to the right place. Never get a preconceived idea about God, Christ, or the Bible that you are not uh, uh, that you are not able uh, to throw it out when you see in the Word of God. That ain't the way it is. I think of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch again, Acts chapter eight. That eunuch was coming to Jerusalem. He had heard in his land that the temple of God under Solomon was in Jerusalem, and if you wanted to have a relationship with God, that's where you went. Now. Here's the key. That's going to get you nowhere. In Acts chapter 8, going to Jerusalem to worship is going to land you straight in the lake of fire. But this guy is following all the light that he had. And when you follow the light that you have and you're honest about it, God is obligated to get you the truth about where he wants you to do and what he wants you to go. So he reaches out here and he pulls Philip. I've always thought that was interesting. Philip was an evangelist, and he's over in Samaria in the early part of Acts chapter 8. And a great revival is going on in Samaria. Thousands of people are coming to Christ, and he's the preacher. Yet God thought nothing of lifting him out of that revival and sending him right over there to that Ethiopian eunuch on the backside of the desert. You know, I've known preachers, evangelists, 
that won't go to a church that can't guarantee them 5,000 people because their ministry is so valuable that they can't spend it on less than 5,000 people? Well, I wouldn't have you come over and clean up the dog doo-doo in the back of my yard. And if you did, I wouldn't give you a shovel. Use some of your sermons to pick it up with. They go hand in hand. Get my point. And you know what? Philip didn't say, Lord, okay, today? Over in Gaza? One guy? But, but Okay, I got it, Lord. But you don't understand. I got to preach tonight. Lord, maybe you haven't checked your statistic, but we've had thousands of people saved, and it's because of me. Now, I don't mean to tell you your business, but either you want a revival here or you don't. And honestly, I don't understand why you would pull me out of here for one guy over here. Well, you can send a thousand. I'm the main guy here. They're coming to hear me. You didn't get any of that. God says, Philip, over here. Philip said, yes, sir. And Philip went. And when he went to that Ethiopian eunuch, he's sitting on that old trailer trying to figure it all out. He was on his way to Jerusalem. Now he got a little glitch in his get up here. He's sitting down there. He found Isaiah chapter 53, and he's reading about some guy who shed his blood for him, and he can't figure it out. He's following the light that God gave him. And when you follow righteousness, the light that God gives you, he is obligated to get you to the truth. You know why? That is why almost every one of you is here today. You wanted the truth. You wanted it. You had a desperate desire in your heart to get it. And at that point, God put somebody in your life to get you where you could get the truth. Now, when he goes to that Ethiopian eunuch, he says, who am I reading about here? And the Bible says that he, he, he began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. You know what he said? He said, look, pal, going to Jerusalem is a, is a waste of time. That don't work anymore. Wrong dispensation. There's one now come that the prophet's talking about that died on the cross for you. And you've got to put your faith and trust in him. You know what that Ethiopian eunuch did? He believed on Jesus. Amen. He didn't say, well, I don't know. I had my heart set on going to Jerusalem. <laughs> I don't know. That Bible college I went to back there, they said Jerusalem was the place to go. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, my translation doesn't read it that way. I don't know. I better pray about this. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. He followed the light that he had, and he didn't care. Listen, here it is. He didn't care if it was Jerusalem. He didn't care if it was Jesus. He just wanted the truth. I don't care. If you've got to be baptized to go to heaven, I'm in. If you've got to do this to go to heaven, I'm in. I don't care what it is. I don't have any preconceived ideas about anything I want to believe about the Bible. I just want the truth. You show me the truth. You give me the truth. I'll dump everything else for the truth. That's what that old guy did. He didn't care about Jerusalem anymore. He didn't care about the temple. He wanted the truth. 
When people want the truth, you don't get an argument about the truth. Paulus, Acts chapter 19. Here's a case in point. He was baptized under the John's baptism to the nation of Israel in John the Baptist. So his salvation technically was through the baptism of the repentance of Israel. But that's over now. That, that salvation ain't going to get you nowhere but in hell. So he comes into a New Testament church run by a husband and wife pastor team of Quill and Priscilla. Nice congregation of people. They're all talking about the Lord and everything. And he said, my name was Apollos, and I, I'd like to give a testimony of my salvation. They said, brother, we'd love to have you. He stands up. And it doesn't say what he said, but I'll tell you what he said. He said, you know what? I was a sinner just like all of you. Amen. Praise the Lord, brother. Yeah, I was. And I tell you, I needed something changed in my life. Amen, brother. Blader, glory to God. Go ahead, Apollos. Let us have it. Talk to us, boy. And he's up there and he's saying, I'll tell you what. One day in my life, I was down there by the river. And he said, oh, down by the river. Yeah, down by the river. So, yeah, that's a good one. Now, shall we gather at the river? That would be a great song someday out of right. And so he's down there and he says, and John the Baptist was preaching. And I went down there. And he said, if I would get the baptism of repentance, I could be saved. And I was baptized. And the old church went, oh, Will and Priscilla said, come here, Paulus. That don't work anymore. That was the wrong dispensation. We, Israel rejected. We're in the church age now. Paul's now. Now if you want to go to heaven, you gotta, can't get baptized by going to heaven. Get to heaven by being baptized. You've got to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. And the Bible says they showed, they showed the way of God unto him more perfectly. More perfectly. What did he do? Oh, no, man. <laughs> I, you can't deny my experience. I was baptized. Oh, no, 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 no. John the Baptist was greater. Nobody greater than him and anybody. Oh, no, I'm sticking with that. No, he didn't care. He did exactly what Aquila and Priscilla did, and he shows up in the next chapter or the rest of this chapter like everybody else, saved, born again, and on his way to heaven. You know why? He didn't care whether it was John's baptism or the cross of Calvary. He, too, just wanted the truth. You want the truth? That's how you get it. You follow the light that God gives you. You don't argue with your pastor when, when you know he's the guy and you know the church is the right church and you understand he's helping you make the investments. You may have some of the screwiest ideas in your brain. Flush them. Everybody that ever got in trouble got in trouble by thinking they're smarter than the guy that God sent them to help them with their stupidity. Amen. In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, he's a Roman. He's a Roman. And you know, that's another good point about Paul. Paul was the greatest Christian that ever lived. He was a Roman by citizenship. The most pagan, godless people on the planet. You know what? He, was, he used the fact that he was a Roman. He never discounted him being a Roman. How do you justify the fact that he was a Christian, yet he was still proud and boasted about being a Roman? Figure that one out. Take you about 15 years. Come and talk to me about that one, too. This Philippian jailer, he's a Roman. Paul's in jail. And he, he, the, the, the gate, the door comes open, and he thinks he's going to be in trouble. He's going to kill himself. Paul said, do thyself no harm. He went over to here, and he says, let me show you something. And he won him to Christ. 
Here's a Roman who believed in 500 gods of the Roman Empire. He believed in everything that was adverse to Christianity. But that night, when he saw the truth of God, he fell on his knees. He trusted Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior. And he never looked back to the world. He wanted the truth. You only get the truth one way. Following the light that God gives you. Because God loveth him that followeth after righteousness. And you can't make that some nebulous, oh my, that righteousness is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is only expounded through the New Testament local church. And that don't only be a New Testament local church that is biblical based, Bible based, and lays it out biblically. Study Christ. Document who he was. Document what he did. Document what he said. Get his life into a New Testament context. Study the three natures of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to have a relationship with him? You want to go after, uh, follow after righteousness? Study him as the Son of God. Study him as the Son of Man. Study him as the Word of God. You want to really understand what he's all about? Study the difference between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. You really want to get an understanding of it? Following after righteousness? All right. He's got eight bodies throughout the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ does. Eight distinct bodies. Find out what they are. You want to know him? Want to follow him? Make sure you're following the right body at the right time. The man or woman who follows righteous consistently will attain it. Greatest example of that is Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest back in the 1500s. He had a desire to know God, and he did everything that the Catholic Church told him to do. He whipped himself. He beat himself. He did penance. He did the rosary and the cow. He did everything that they said. He used to crawl up the cathedral steps, over 300 steps on his knees till they were bloody, trying to make amends for his sins to a holy God. And everything the church, the church told him to do, it didn't take it away. But he had a desire in his heart. He knew there was something more to it. And one day he opened up a Bible. What a dirty trick to play on the church. And in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, God opened up that great spotlight out of heaven and gave him the light that he needed when he said, Martin, the just, the just, the just shall live by faith. No more crawling on your knees. No more goofy stuff you think. Follow the righteous Lord Jesus Christ and the light that God gives you. For Christ is the end of the law, Bible says, Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. He says in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. That's Christ. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Christian life is real simple, folks. God made an investment in you. And some of you don't even know what it cost in that investment. 
Some of you have never taken the time to read Job chapter 30, Isaiah chapter 51, Isaiah chapter 50. You've never taken the time to read Isaiah 53. You've never taken the time to see the investment, what it costs God. And we actually think after what it costs God that we're going to live our Christian life and then we complain because it does cost us something. You're out of your mind. You're insane. Why, if stupidity was a crime, you'd be doing 25 years of life. To actually think after the investment that God made in you and me and what it cost Him, that we now can take salvation and this be free and not cost us nothing? We live our lives without making no investment at all? God, I hate the 20th and the 21st century. God's people. Taking that investment, every one of you, taking that investment, recognizing the price that was paid, and then understand that the real success for you as the child of God is simply nothing more than the rest of your life, taking that initial investment and reinvesting it and bringing revenue, a return. You're going to either bring a revenue for God or you're going to bring a revenue for the wicked. My job here is to help you do that. My job here, I came to terms a long time ago that people that want help, I'll help. The people that won't want help, hey, I love you, but you do what you want to do. You dink around with the Bible all you want. It's fine. I have no problem with it. But I'm interested in men and women who want to take and make an investment of their life back to God. That's all this church is about. That's all I'm about. I want to make, help you make the very best investments in your life that you never have to worry about when you get old and you can't serve God anymore, that you don't have some investments out there that's working for you when you can't work for yourself anymore for the Lord. And it starts with your children. And then everything else that you put out there. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus and thank you for those that are here today. And Lord, we do love you. And Lord, help us. If this church never gets anything... Let us understand of the investment that you made in us. It isn't about us. It isn't about who does what. It isn't about who gets the credit for what. It isn't about that, oh, Bob does this, or they do this, or he wrote this, or that. It isn't about that. It's just about that the things that we do were only given back to what you've given us, and it all belongs to you. Help us to realize the investment we make is nothing more than the investment of the original investment that you made to us. Help us all be spiritual Donald Trumps. Help us take that initial investment and turn it into a treasure for us at the judgment seat of Christ and for an honor and glory unto you because of what you did for us. Lord, there'll be no greater reward back to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. No greater reward, nothing that he would ever want more than for us to give back everything to Him in the form of an investment that brings the ultimate honor and glory to Him because it all comes from Him. It all goes back to Him. Help us, Lord. Help us in these last days with a million things out there that takes our mind off of the most important thing we have, our relationship with You. Help us to be balanced. Help us not to be goofy. Help us to be strong, straightforward, and sound in what we believe and why we do what we do. Let there be a principle and a model behind every decision we make.
And our church is here to help those people who want to make the right decisions. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen.